I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. A note, this episode contains descriptions of graphic violence. Listener's discretion is advised. Way back in episode one, I talked about my reason for doing this podcast. I'd written a book about Mio and Herbert Zuckers, but I was left feeling there was something missing in the story. The answer to the question of why. Why did Herbert Zuckers go from being a national hero to a mass murderer? As I researched Mossad's mission to assassinate Zuckers, I picked up clues here and there from the people I've been talking to. But really, I've saved answering that question for this episode. Because it turned out to have more sides to it than I originally thought. I'm Stephen Talty, and this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. Episode 10, Motives for Murder. So the opinion of most people I spoke to was that Zuckers had always been a secret anti-Semite. He had to be. Before the war, he'd hidden this hatred inside himself. But really, down deep, he hated Jews. And when the war came, the Nazis gave him a chance to use that hatred. And he did terrible things. End of story. But that just didn't fit the facts. So I kept looking. And in that search, I found Zelma. Zelma was a bright, beautiful Jewish girl. During the war, on the day her family had been murdered, Zelma had been hidden by a Latvian guy was hopelessly in love with her. His nickname was Nank. And she stayed in hiding, undercover as it were, and learned things that take us to the heart of Zucker's life. Her story also involves psychiatric asylums, an escape to Sweden, suicide attempts, and much more. 
But her story is mostly about suffering and love and never forgetting. Selma is the key to knowing the question of why, or at least one side of it. So I want to tell you Selma's story. Selma was a Latvian Jew studying foreign languages at a college in Riga. She was in her early 20s at the time the Russians invaded in 1940. Her dream was to learn foreign languages and escape Latvia. She was fiery and she was beautiful. In my book, I compare her to a Jewish Rita Hayworth. I think the description fits. Zelma came from a very close family. She had a younger sister and an older brother. She'd grown up in a small town in Latvia, but her ambitions were to leave, to see the world, and to eventually settle in Palestine. When I went to Israel in 2018 to research this story, I met with Zelma's daughter, Naomi. Naomi was hesitant at first to speak with me. She was very protective of her mother, so I started out with something simple. Tell me what your mother was like. You know, it's rather complicated, you know, to describe one's own mother, you know. She was, first of all, she was a loving personality. She loved people and she she was a very devoted person. But as I knew her since I was a child, she was a loving, a devoted mother, but, you know, like, I don't know if you know what they say about the Jewish mothers. They are crazy, always worried and devoted and loving, like, without any limit. But I think that it was also because of her past. She was always worried that I shouldn't be cold and that I would have enough food. Why Zelma was so worried that her daughter would have enough food, well, that becomes clear a little later. So Zelma was at college in Riga during the Soviet occupation. She suffered along with everyone else. But when the Germans came in 1941, everything changed. Her family was forced into a ghetto in one of the poor neighborhoods of the city. Barbed wire went up. Food was scarce. But Zelma and her sister got jobs outside of the ghetto. She went to work and returned every night. One day, she was detained by the police and brought to the building in Riga, where the Araj Commando, the unit that Herbert Zucker served in, had its headquarters. Here's Zelma describing how she remembers that night from an interview she did with the USC Shoah Foundation. We are already inside, as I mentioned, inside the courtyard. Jewelry is being confiscated, shouting, yelling. So the girls were driven, including me, of course, into the cellar, which was dark. There was a small lamp overhead. It was dirty, and there were signs that people had spent there the night because it was rather dirty. In one corner, there was a so-called toilet. And we were sitting on the floor. A guard was all the time watching us without saying anything, without asking questions. And um, this went on until late afternoon, towards evening. These uh, Perkonkurs people started coming to, to the cellar one after the other, and they picked out girls, including me. Upstairs, they were all drunk, I could tell it easily. They were, all had pistols in their hands. So the so-called officer uh, facing me said upstairs, and I did go upstairs because there was no other way out. She was brought to a room where Victor Raj, the leader of the commandos, was waiting. She begged him to let her go, but he refused. It was his, in his office. He raped me. He humiliated me. He uh, tortured me sexually. And I thought that's the end. His name was Arais, Victor's Arais. 
How did she know it was a Raj himself? Who was the perpetrator? Uh, I wouldn't have known it, but when I was crying and weeping and asking for mercy, he said, you bitch, don't you know who is standing before you? He said, I am Victor's Ara, is the boss of this place. Some months later, Zelma was told that the Nazis were going to round up the Jews and take them to a work camp outside of Latvia. Her father was hopeful. Maybe the Nazis would let them live. Of course, there had been atrocities and murders, but who knew? It was still early in the war, and stories about concentration camps and the gas chambers hadn't started circulating yet. But Zelma sensed something terrible was happening. So one day, she said goodbye to her parents as usual and told her sister what she was planning. Please don't tell our parents. They shouldn't know anything. They will not survive if they hear what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit suicide. I'm not going to give them a chance to torture me, to rape me again, and to kill me. I will die the way I find correct. She was going to commit suicide by jumping in the Dogava River that flowed through Riga. She wouldn't allow the Nazis and their accomplices to hurt her again. She'd decide for herself how her life would end. So she walked toward the river. But before she arrived, she visited an apartment where a Latvian man was living, the guy Nank that I mentioned before. She just wanted to leave a message for a family friend, but Nank was in love with Zelma had been ever since he spotted her at a country dance months before. And when she told him what she was about to do, Nank insisted she stay there, in the apartment, and Zelma agreed. Nank saved her and risked his life in the process. Had he been caught, he would have been shot alongside Zelma. So the thing about Nank's apartment was he had two roommates. And these guys worked for the Araj Commando, who were helping the Nazis round up and kill Jews. This was Herbert Zucker's unit. Later, it would come out that the Araj Commando, or Latvian Auxiliary Security Police, was responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of Jews, Roma, Latvian communists, mental health patients, and others. They were notorious violent, bloodthirsty. So Zelma was hiding from the Nazis inside this apartment where Nazi collaborators came all the time. They had parties there, brought their girlfriends. Nank introduced Zelma to these guys as his fiance, and it worked. But the Nazis were still conducting sweeps, looking for people hiding Jews. It was really dangerous. In the first place, they used to, to come together to eat, drink, and sing. All their songs, even their, uh, their, their national songs, not the Anzema, but uh, folk songs, uh, had a parody against Jews. Let's uh, throw the Jews into, into the river and let's kill them, something like that. You can imagine what I felt like sitting among them. But I had only one aim and didn't think of anything that of anything uh, they are saying. Remember, remember forever their names, the surname, what school they went to, what they were doing before the war, whatever you can. You have a mission. Why did the rest perish? Why did you stay alive? And your mission is the oaths you have, you have given at the mass graves in Bikernaki, that if you stay alive, you will destroy them, as many of them as you can. And this is what I did. Someone tried to find out what happened to her family, but it was hard to ask questions like that. Why should a supposedly Gentile Latvian girl care about what happened to some Jewish family? Finally, she spotted an ex-boyfriend of hers, a Jewish guy who'd somehow escaped the sweeps. She asked him if he knew about her family. He passed her a note, telling her that both their families were dead, along with thousands of other Jews. Zelma was devastated, of course. Her brother had escaped to Russia, but her mother 
her father and her younger sister were gone. She began to have nightmares. Her daughter told me that they lasted for the rest of her life. Yes, she had nightmares as far as I remember myself, you know. When I was a child, there was not a single night that passed quietly for her. And as my dad was a neuropathologist, he knew how to treat her, of course. So she took a lot of medicines in order to just to sleep at least a few hours during the night. And uh, she was shouting at night and she was crying. So with her family gone, Zelm was alone in Riga. All she had was Nank. And every day she was in danger of being discovered. Once, the Gestapo came to the apartment where they lived. And uh, so they knocked on the door and my mom, she, well, Nank, the Latvian who saved her, just he told her to go in the little room near the kitchen. It was uh, usually the maid's room and closed the door and my mom put on a kerchief and uh, by the way, she was a great actor. And they came into the room, they opened the door and she behaved like some simpleton, like, you know, like a person who was in a psychiatric state, not so, let's say, normative as they say nowadays, yes. So they asked, and who are you? And so she mumbled something that they said, okay, leave her, that's not the case, and they closed the door. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Zelma had a lucky escape, but she stayed with Nank. And despite the danger and the surveillance, she became obsessed with doing something about the murders of her family. She wanted the killers to be punished. So when the commando members came to visit, she would listen very closely to their conversations. I heard the names of their friends, of their collaborators. They used to come to the house. 
particular to Mira's era already, not so much to Stabu era. And they, they, those people had no idea who I was, and they kept sitting and boasting how many people they've shot what day, and I knew exactly where they came from, what their names were, etc. So she kept a list. Sometimes they would brag about what they'd done that day, about how many Jews they'd killed. She would listen carefully to catch the men's names, what schools they went to, what towns they were from. There were other Jews hiding in Latvia, but as far as I can tell, no one had kept a list like Zelma. It was as if, while the war was still going on, that she'd become a Nazi hunter, like Simon Wiesenthal and Tuvia Friedman. Even those two never really began their search until after the war. Zelma did it under the nose of the Gestapo. I asked Naomi about this. Why did her mother take on this job? Was it survivor's guilt? Uh, she never, well, we talked a lot, of course, but she never told me that she had any uh, feeling of guilt. It may be that deep in her soul, she felt it. Like many, like many people, there were uh, many people who couldn't just continue and committed suicide, yes, because they couldn't live with it. I asked Naomi, why was her mother so determined? Why was she so determined? I think it was very important for her. I don't think there are just a few people who just were so tolerant, you know, and didn't want to find the the murderers. She was determined to do it, yes, because perhaps it's also, yes, you are right, you know, perhaps it's also due to her character. This is amazing. I don't know of any other examples, and I've researched this, of solo Jews actively surveilling and hunting Nazis during the war, while they were still in power. She was determined, like, I'm not going to stop till we find this and this and this and that one, you know? And I want to do it, and that's it, you know? Well, it was was her character, because she looked upon herself as a very strong person, and she was very strong in different aspects of her life, yes, not only in this aspect. One night, there was a party at the apartment. Lots of men crowding in, drinking. And in the middle of it, Zelma heard that someone special had arrived. It was Herbert Zuckers. When he came in, she heard him say something. He was showing the others his gun. And he announced to the crowd that with that gun, he'd killed 30 Jews that day. It was the only confession that Zuckers would ever make. Zelma memorized his words. She added Zuckers to her list of killers. And she waited. In 1944, just before the war ended, Zelma and Nank escaped to Sweden together. One of the first things Zelma did was to write an account of what had happened in Riga. She included all the names of the killers that she'd written down. So this was still 1944. Zelma's report was one of the first eyewitness accounts of the Holocaust. There were lots of stories during the war of the camps and the atrocities. But in 1944, there weren't yet available first-person eyewitness accounts like Zelma's. Had she been able to get it out into the world, it would have been a big deal. She brought the report to the big newspapers in Stockholm, but was rebuffed. The most important newspaper in Sweden is Dagens Nyheter. I had a report for them. I went there to the editor, to the chief editor. And that was a time when they still hoped that the Germans would win the war. And when I told him the contents of my report, he said, I am sorry, for such things we have no space in our newspaper. She brought a report to the attention of American and British embassies in Sweden. And their reaction was even worse. They read the the report. They were terribly frightened. There was a list of a number of war criminals. They destroyed it. There was a list of survivors, which they destroyed partly. And, um, And that's it. So after the war, I thought I would never see it again. 
Most of Latvia's Jews were already dead, but others were still hiding and being pursued. It was still time to save them and to arrest the men who'd killed Selma's family. They were still in Latvia. They could be captured, but nobody did anything. The Germans were still powerful and people were afraid of getting on their wrong side. At that point, it was thought perhaps they'd win the war. Who knew? Zelma was shocked, depressed. Nobody seemed to care or to believe her. She never mentioned what exactly, but she was very much disappointed, yes, that the people didn't want to hear about it there in Sweden. That's right. Yes, I think it was something political, you know, that they didn't want to spoil their relationships. Yes, she was very much disappointed her whole life about it. That's right. After the war, Zelma and Nank returned to Latvia. There, the Soviets were taking over again. And Nank was arrested for anti-Soviet activities. He deposed the occupation back in 1940. Zelma, who now thought of him as a friend and not a husband or a lover, tried to help. She went to the authorities and offered to take his place. But they told her if she stuck by Nank, she would go to prison too. As she lobbied for Nank's release, Zelma met and fell in love with a Jewish doctor, the man who'd become Naomi's father. They married and eventually had two girls, Naomi and her sister. Nank, by the way, knew all about this. He'd even given his approval. He and Zelma were just friends by this time, and Nank wanted her to be happy. So Zelma had all this information about Herbert Zuckers and the other perpetrators, but she was stuck in Latvia. The Soviets wouldn't let her leave. Things got bad. Because she wouldn't denounce Nank and become an informer for the Soviet spy agency, she was thrown in a psychiatric asylum. The conditions were horrible, and she lost hope. She even tried to commit suicide, but a Latvian nurse saved her. Eventually, Zelma was released, but she was still an outcast. Finally, 20 years later, she and her family emigrated to Israel. And then, things got interesting. In the late 70s, Victor Araj, the leader of the violent commando unit, that was responsible for the deaths of so many during the war, the man who'd raped Zelma was arrested in Frankfurt, Germany, where he was living under an assumed name. He was brought to trial in Hamburg in 1979. The trial was made possible only because of Zelma and other survivors who'd volunteered to testify against the Nazi collaborator. Without them, there would have been no case. Zelma was nervous but she agreed to fly from Israel to Hamburg to face Araj 30 years after he'd attacked her. I knew I have to be strong. I knew I have to do my job. I knew that it has to be proven that this man is the greatest murderer of Eastern Europe during the war, that he's responsible for the killing of Latvian Jewry, and he has to spend his life in prison. Naomi went with her mother for emotional support. They were afraid, but it was a chance to get justice and to find out why. And as I told you, I was with her in, in Hamburg, you know, during the trial of Arise. And I saw her there, how she behaved and how she, you know, she was so strong. She just uh, didn't break down. I think it was very hard for her, but she did it. Finally, Araj was brought into the courtroom. Selma got up and told her story. The roundups, the violent rape, the killings. At the end, the jurors asked her a few questions. Then the presiding judge leaned over to address her. This is hard to believe, every word you are saying. Then a black and white photograph was placed before her, showing about 30 men in uniform. The judge told her, then he was a young man. Now before you, an old, ailing man is sitting. Could you identify him? I put on my glasses. Go ahead. Pointing at him, that's him. The court was silent. 
The defense attorney approached her and asked, But how did you know that what was done to you was done by Aras? So I said, he said to me, you bitch, do you know who is standing before you? I'm Viktor Aras. He said, habe keine Fragen mehr, have no more questions. The attorney nodded to the judge and the cross-examination was over. Arai's sentence was probably sealed at this point, but prosecutors wanted to know about his unit and about Herbert Zucker's. On the witness stand, they pressed Arai about his second-in-command, and Arai finally revealed what had caused Zucker's to join up. Arai described his first meeting with Zucker's. Around the time of the German invasion, he said, the aviator had left his farm and come to the capital to meet with him. They talked, and Zuckers began asking for refuge. Rumors were circulating in the countryside, Zuckers told him, claiming that he had worked as a Soviet collaborator during the occupation. The gossip apparently contained details. Not only had he turned Bolshevik, but the Soviets had given him a Cadillac as payment for his services. Other sources I was able to find confirmed this. In 1940, during the first Soviet occupation, Zuckers had been called to Moscow by the vice minister of the aviation industry. The man had heard about Zuckers' brilliance in designing airplanes. He asked the aviator to help the Russians build long-range bombers. It was a tough moment for Zuckers. Soviets were hated in Latvia for the horrors they were inflicting on the people there. But this... It was a huge opportunity. Zuckers could become a major player in world aviation. So he took the job. Later, with the Nazis in control, Zuckers was afraid. He must have sensed the murderous rage that Latvians felt toward anyone who'd worked with the Russians. He was faced with the same accusation being made against the Jews and Nazi propaganda being broadcast daily on the radio. Every Jew is a Bolshevik. If he didn't find a way to separate himself from the rumors, he could share the Jews' fate. And so he sought out Araj, who took him on as his second-in-command. This was what I'd been looking for. The answer to why. Zuckers thought he could be executed. So he joined the commando unit and began killing Jews. It wasn't anti-Semitism. It was plain self-preservation survival. He was scared. He was a coward. But what an awful transaction. Save your skin, but help take the lives of 30,000 innocent people. It was, in a way, worse than I had thought. If Zuckers had been a true believer, someone that really believed that Jews were what the Nazis said they were, that was one thing. But to kill your neighbors and friends just to stay alive it actually bothered me more than my original theory. So I had an answer, or at least a partial one. But I wanted to run it by one more person. I wanted to know if Zuckers still mattered. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. 
Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Assassins Hunting the Butcher isn't over. Next week, I talk about some of Mossad's greatest operations with snipers, stolen airplanes, terrorist masterminds, and other surprises. I think you'll like it, and I hope you tune in. I'd heard about attempts to rehabilitate Zucker's reputation. In 2014, there'd actually been a musical about him, which played in Latvia to cheering crowds. This is a number from the show that asks whether Zucker's is a killer or a misunderstood national hero. The musical ignited a debate. Some denounced it, but others on the far right said he was, in fact, innocent and should be publicly exonerated. I wondered if the spirit of Herbert Zuckers still lived on in Riga. So I called Ilya Lensky. He's the director of the Jews in Latvia Museum in Riga, and he studied history at the University of Latvia. He's young, Jewish, I called him up at his office on Zoom. I started out by asking him how many Jews are left in Riga today and if they felt safe. So we estimate that it could be at minimum of 8,000 Jews in all of Latvia. Well, majority of them in Riga. Sometimes it's estimated to be up to 10,000. And then, of course, there's a much broader group of people who could potentially be affiliated with the Jewish community, so having Jewish roots or whatever, but that's a different story. So we could estimate about 8,000 people who identify themselves as Jews, and uh, most of whom are connected to the Jewish community religiously, culturally, in different ways. So nor there is legal discrimination, of course, but also there is no unofficial discrimination. And we would presume that Latvia is one of the few countries in Europe where basically the Jewish community does not see anti-Semitism as the major challenge to its existence. I mean, we cannot say that there is no anti-Semitism. And of course, also, Tsukur's story is part of story of anti-Semitism as well. But, uh, but anti-Semitism, we do not consider it to be the major challenge. Wow. That's surprising. He's saying that there's almost no anti-Semitism in Latvia anymore, which is great, and not what I was expecting to hear. I had a few more questions on that. So do you think that Latvians have sort of faced up to their role in the Holocaust, you know, in a sort of full and honest way? 
that's a good question. I don't have an answer to this because actually we don't know what is a full honest way. I worked for the museum for almost 15 years and uh, for all of this time I've been involved in one way or another in researching how Latvian society sees the Holocaust today. And so I can say that definitely Latvian society has made a significant progress in the last 30 years. And we have to understand that also during the Soviet times, there was a complex, say, multi-layered issue of how Holocaust is perceived. I asked Ilya what he thought was causing this change. I think as the generations change, and generally as we are more and becoming more and more European, particularly with joining the EU and so on, the paradigm changes in the sense that there is, for example, is basically gone, at least in the public sphere, the concept that the Holocaust was just a revenge for the atrocities of the Jewish communists. Yeah? So, I mean, this was something that you could still encounter in the 90s. People would say, yeah, Latvians were participating, it's a bad thing, but the Jews were the main perpetrators during the communist terror in 1940, yeah, which is basically reproducing Nazi propaganda, yeah, because the Nazis used this as an excuse for their anti-Jewish repressions. They used this to recruit Latvians to collaborate. So today we basically do not see it in public discourse. I mean, again, we, we see it on the internet, but I don't think that any sane politician today would dare to say something like that. This was really incredible. Was Ilya really saying that the struggle against anti-Semitism was over? I cannot say that we are in the end of the way of how we speak about the Holocaust, but the fact that the Holocaust is being now also portrayed rather openly in um, cultural products, we could say. We have it in the literature, we have it in the movies. I think it's a sort of a good sign. So I would say that I don't know if we're doing good, but I can say that, in my opinion, we have a great progress. And that's what makes me very optimistic. So, good news. Zuckers was far less popular in Latvia than I'd imagined. But I still wanted to ask Ilya the big question about motives. I'm just wondering what your personal opinion of Zuckers is. One of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast is the whole question of why. I mean, he was a man who had some Jewish friends or he was seen in cafes talking to Jews before the war. His father employed Jews in his workshop. He didn't have a terrible reputation. He, 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 he visited Palestine. He's visited Palestine. He, he, gave, he gave a talk yes. in Palestine in the Jewish club. Absolutely. So he was kind of a hero for Jews and non-Jews alike in the 30s. Have you thought about this idea of betrayal, why he seemed to turn on his Latvian neighbors, even people he knew? Well, first of all, as we know, Zuckers possibly could have been suspected of cooperating with the Soviets, yeah, because he tried to work as an engineer for the Soviets. Okay, they failed, but it's a different story. So it could be that he was afraid, but it's only a small part of the explanation. It, it could be an explanation why he joined the RIS unit. But the biggest question, so why did he actively collaborate? The answer is pretty simple. He just didn't see any issue. You see, that's the most weird thing, that when we discuss Tucker's case, we do not discuss the case of a fervent antisemite. This had never occurred to me, that Zuckers killed Jews because he didn't see any issue. It was the weirdest answer, honestly, I'd gotten in three years of research. I think Ilya sensed my confusion, because he went on. Yeah, so... We're discussing a regular person who just did not see an issue. Okay, I I go there, I work there. Okay, yeah, I, I kill people, but it's, it's a situation. I mean, in different situations, I would not be killing people. In this situation, I'm doing my work, and part of my work involves occasionally killing people. So, so what? Yeah, I mean, the war is going on. It's bad. It's bad for everyone. Okay, so I, I don't know to what extent we could say and we could trust uh, the witness accounts that he was really enjoying 
doing what he was doing? That's the question. We can presume that at some point, yes, but I'm not a psychologist, so I don't want to discuss these things. But probably he just didn't see it as an issue. And that's, you see, that's why he was not hiding, for example. In the 50s, living in the 60s, living in Brazil, he was not hiding, he was giving interviews, yeah, where he said that the accusations against him are fake and that he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, so if you really consider yourself guilty, then probably you hide, as many, you know, real Nazis did. Yeah, German Nazis, but also, for example, as we know, Arais was living in hiding. So probably he just did not see any problem with it. And I would say one of the key elements when we discuss the issues of Holocaust and life in general, that many people in the Arais unit, they didn't have any record of membership in anti-Semitic organizations before that. We cannot say that they were like fervent anti-Semites. No, they were regular people, yeah, ordinary men. So probably this could be also an answer to why he did what he did. In other circumstances, he would not do that, but circumstances were that he did it and probably didn't see it as, as anything wrong or any, anything problematic. Probably he saw it as something wrong, but not too wrong. So Ilya's theory, if you can call it that, was that Zuckers didn't see what the big deal was about. So what? He helped kill some Jews. That's what was happening in Riga in 1941. That's what was happening everywhere, at least in German-controlled countries. It was like in the air you breathed. You couldn't escape it. So Zuckers wasn't taunting the Israelis when he said he was innocent. He wasn't a sociopath. He was something far more ordinary. A guy who went along with things, who didn't have the courage to stand up and say no. There was another layer to this, one that reminded me of Zucker's behavior when he first got to Brazil in the late 40s. In his many newspaper and magazine interviews, Zucker's promoted himself almost as a victim. He said, you know, the Russians came to my country, and then the Germans, and I was a refugee, and I fought them in any way I could. Dr. Sarah Valente, the professor who studies the legacy of the Holocaust in Brazil, came across a particularly startling example of Zucker's doing this. Uh, so he says, Zucker's claims to have lived without political preoccupations, devoting his life entirely to aviation. So he was not a political person at all. He was only flying. He was only a pilot. And that his country was invaded by the Russians on June 17, 1940. And that the Latvian Jews dominated and enslaved the rest of the population, carrying out massacres and tortures that wiped out more than 30,000 civilians. This, to me is very telling because in this moment, he is bringing the blame to the Jews as being the ones who are capable of having done this. It's a fascinating article from a research perspective in the sense that he says, Kuker further claims that during the Russian occupation, he disguised himself as a peasant and took part in the underground resistance movement. He then joined the Latvian army and fought the Russians alongside the Germans when they began their offensive in July of 1941. He maintains that he did not take part in any massacre against Jews. He never changed his name, he never went into hiding, and was not accused by the Allied authorities. So it's almost like he took on this mantle of victimhood and kept exaggerating it to the point that he couldn't see anything he did as problematic. I asked Ilya about this. As you mentioned, when he came to Brazil, he did give interviews. And um, one of the interesting things I found is that he promoted himself almost as a victim and couldn't see anything that he did as problematic as you said. Do you think this is a wider issue for Latvians that the suffering of the year of terror was not acknowledged by the wider world and their own suffering wasn't perhaps given the weight that they wanted it to? Yes, that's definitely true. I mean, I think many ethnic Latvians in the country, but also in the emigre community, they felt that their story is being neglected 
And uh, there is interesting memoir. It's a semi-fiction, semi-memoir, but generally trustworthy by Zanta Maurinha, a prominent Latvian literary critic. And there she describes the discussion she had with some Latvian intellectual. She calls him the professor. And there she, she describes how a few days after Rumbula killings, she was talking to this professor and he said that England and France didn't say a word when 100,000 children from the Baltics were deported to Siberia by the Soviets. So why should we care about the Jews being killed? Lots of Latvians suffered horrific things during the war. And that didn't get a lot of attention, even today. I think a very important point is that the Jews were not seen as part of the society. It was not only anti-Semitism. It was generally kind of um, glass walls existing within Latvian society. That makes sense. Part of the Latvian mentality is that they're caught between two ancient enemies. And in the 40s, they were terrorized by both of them. Latvians wanted that story told. I would too. I had one more question for Ilya. It's great that Jews in Latvia feel little or no hatred toward them today. But his answers made me think. Use Zuckers as an example. Before the war, a good guy, not an anti-Semite. Then the war comes, and he changes completely. But not because of anti-Semitism. Not really. So even if the situation for Jews in Latvia today is good, did that mean everything was fine? Or were we missing something? I came to that age-old question. Could something like the Holocaust happen there again? That's a good question. The problem, as I said, that actually we don't understand how much this hidden sentiment was present back then. Or to say how much the pre-war anti-Semitism, which, which existed and which at some points was rather hardcore. It was non-violent, but it was very hardcore. And it was present in the political rhetorics. Very, it was visible. To what extent it's connected with uh, with the events of the Holocaust? To what extent people who were hating the Jews non-violently in the 30s they went to killing the Jews in the 40s? Yeah, and so I would say this is more threatening somehow than uh, than open anti-Semitism. I think this has to do very much with general human psychology. That's why I always say that the Holocaust, after all, is not only is the part of the Jewish history, but behind it is the whole story of humankind and how a human being functions in extreme conditions and so on. It reminds me of this saying I heard once about the military. Generals are always prepared to fight the last war. Meaning, they learn the lessons of the past, but fail to anticipate the future. The next war, or the next attempted genocide, will probably be different than the Holocaust. We see the past clearly. We can study Zuckers as a kind of test case, measure his anti-Semitism, the trade-offs he made in wanting to survive. But looking ahead, that's much harder. I asked Ilya about this. Yeah, so so when, when, when you suddenly just strike when you think about the Holocaust, and it happens, I guess, to many historians. Yeah, I mean, all of us who explored the Holocaust, we have a rather strong kind of, you know, emotional screen because, but, but even us at some point, we just come to kind of stupor. We just do not understand. We, do, we don't have this key to unlock the door. Because that's the door much broader than our research, than what we comprehend. It's, it's somewhere in the field of psychology and how a person functions in general, you know? I could tell that Ilya had thought about the same question, probably more than I had. And he'd come up with what I thought was a fascinating conclusion. Yeah, so, 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 so. And that's why I don't like, for example, the question quite often asked in an argument discussions, is Holocaust possible today? We say no, Holocaust is not possible today because Holocaust is what already happened. We already know how Holocaust happened and, you know, it happened. That's it. Is genocide possible? Well, of course, we see it. In Rwanda, in Bosnia, wherever, is 
all the other things possible? Yes, possible. Yeah, it would just not be called Holocaust and probably it would not be against the Jews, but it doesn't matter. So there probably won't be another Holocaust because in a way, we know what to look for. We're pretty well inoculated against that particular virus, aren't we? But while we're trying so hard to spot one disaster, is that where a different one might creep up on us? That's what worries Ilya. And I can see his point. On New Year's Day in January 1941, the great American novelist John Steinbeck sat down to write a letter to a friend. As World War II was raging around the world and plunging humanity into what looked like the darkest period in modern history, Steinbeck wrote, Not that I have lost any hope. All the goodness and the heroisms will rise up again, then be cut down again, and rise up. It isn't that the evil thing wins. It never will. But that it doesn't die. I don't know why we should expect it to. It seems fairly obvious that two sides of a mirror are required before one has a mirror. That two forces are necessary in man before he is man. Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by Stephen Tolte. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive Producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story Editing by Jacob Bronstein with Editorial Direction from Scott Waxman and Mangesh Hatikadur. Editing, Mixing, and Sound Design by Mark Francis. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.